Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me uh, welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. Our friends in Arco, Idaho, that I had such a wonderful time, Kimberly and I and the family uh, last month, and then those at the hangar in Montana, uh, Kimberly and I and the family, we had such a great time with you uh, last month. So, so great that you are joining us for our study of God's Word as well. We are finishing up our series on the book of Acts. Uh, we covered chapters 1 through 19 uh, from January up until Easter. Then we took a break. And now during the five Sundays of August, I'm going to finish the chapters 20 through 28 as we finish up our study of the book of Acts. The series is entitled Rooted in Purpose, From Failure to Mission Accomplished. Today we're going to talk about having the right stuff. Now this is a term that was used for the astronaut program. And you know, astronauts are just a combination of all the things heroic within our culture and society. Uh, They are brave like soldiers. They are athletic like athletes. They are smart like scientists. You roll them all together, you got an astronaut, which we refer to as having the right stuff. And many people consider the greatest accomplishment in human history to be the Apollo 11 landing, putting a man on the moon uh, for the first time. But then others consider the greater technological feat is Apollo 13, where an explosion happens in space 205,000 miles away from planet Earth. And yet the skill of NASA was able, by the grace of God, to bring these three guys back safely. But a big part of what helped them to survive was that these three astronauts had what we call the right stuff. A lady came up to me after the 8.30 service and her husband had worked for the Grunman Corporation and after it was all over, the government didn't want to pay him the full amount because they said you didn't, it never actually landed on the moon. And so Grunman Corporation here in Southern California said, okay, then you, we'll just have you pay us by the mile. How, how would that be? And that's the way we will deal with that. Uh, I don't know if any of you are math-phobic, but my ultimate math-phobic thing is I love the next scene where they have to calculate how much oxygen they have. And so they've got 60 seconds to figure it out, so they all whip out their slide rules. How many of you remember slide rules? Anybody? I don't either, but I've heard that about them and read about them. Saw him, in a, saw him in a museum. Well, here's somebody else who had the right stuff, and that was the Apostle Paul. And it's so important that we examine the courage of Paul because we need it today. Uh, Paul went into a culture, a Greco-Roman world of the first century A.D., 2,000 years ago, that was violently anti-Christian. There was rampant immorality. There was a new age, pervasive new age philosophy pre- present In that culture, does that sound like any culture you know about? And so we need that same culture as we encounter our culture. We need that same courage as we encounter our culture. And so we can be inspired by this, that simply Paul with a few traveling companions sowed the seeds that eventually conquered the Roman Empire and conquered the world. We're now 2,000 years later, two out of three people on planet Earth in some way acknowledge Jesus, and one out of three say that they're actually followers of Jesus. How did he do that? It took courage, and we should be encouraged that there are millions of us when there was just a handful of Paul and his companions, and yet God used them to change their culture. By the grace of God, we can and will do this again. Does anybody want to say amen to that? My friend Tom Mercer said, to encourage people, we must be in courage. Ambrose Redmoon writes, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something is more important than fear. 
Andrew Jackson, one of our former presidents, said, one man with courage makes a majority. Cora Harris writes, the bravest thing you can do when you are not brave is to profess courage and act accordingly. Basically to fake it if you don't feel it. Uh, British Prime Minister Harold Wilson writes, courage is the art of being the only one that knows that you're scared to death. Minion McLaughlin said, the only courage that matters is the kind that gets you from one moment to the next. And I love this quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, a hero is no braver than an ordinary man, but he's braver for five minutes longer. Isn't that great? That's what a hero is. They're braver for five minutes longer than anybody else. So let's look now at our astronaut, and we've got the five places where we're going to see the character traits that Paul exhibited, his courage. We want to emulate that as we encounter our culture and share Christ with our generation. Number one is the eyes. The eyes are focused not on temporary earthly things, but on heavenly eternal things. Christians with the right stuff are prepared to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, we pick it up at the end of the third missionary journey. They're almost back to Jerusalem. They're in Caesarea. We pick it up with verse 10 of chapter 21. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said. So prophets back then, they didn't have video clips and other ways to dramatize or to illustrate uh, their messages. So they did it in dramatic ways. You read in the Old Testament prophets like Jeremiah, who did some crazy things to drive the point home and to illustrate it. And so Agabus takes the belt of Paul, ties his own hands with it, and the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Kind of parallel with what happened to Jesus a number of years back. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, our culture just tries to avoid death at all costs. You know, the fastest growing area of the medical field is the area of anti-aging. We are fanatical against aging. We are fanatical uh, trying to uh, put off death as long as possible. Now, part of that is not wrong. We want to put off death. The healthier we are, the better health we're in, the more effectively we can serve God. Sometimes it's out of our control, but it's within our control. The more effective, it can remove a barrier to us having the energy to serve Christ and, and to do it for as long as time as possible. There's nothing wrong with trying to look uh, younger. There's nothing wrong with that. Funniest thing happened after the 945 service uh, a few months ago. A young lady who had always sat, she'd been here for about a year, she sat in the back of the balcony, and for some reason she came down to the main floor, and she had always seen me from the balcony, but never seen me up close, and she comes over and she goes, oh my goodness. I said, I said, what? Well, she had seen this thing on the back, and she always thought that I had a ponytail. And <laughs> And she was bragging to all of her friends about the hip old guy at the church that she goes to that had a ponytail. She was so disappointed I didn't have a ponytail. Made me want to grow one just to see, uh, you know, just to play. And so, so anyway, there's nothing wrong with, with uh, trying to look younger. That's, that's all good. And nothing wrong with being in good health. But the Christian perspective is so much different. And it's one of the real things we have to offer our, our world, thousands of reasons for following Jesus. But you know, the perspective on aging is one of them. Because you see, if, 
If your main dream was to be as athletic and as good-looking as possible, you can see why the world gets depressed. Because every day that goes by, we get further and further away from that in our past. Last night, had a couple of track buddies from high school in town. And so we went out to dinner last night. We hadn't laid eyes on each other in 41 years. And I was so embarrassed because I'm like, you're the track guy? Why? You know, what happened to you over the last four decades, Glenn? And see, if all of our self-worth is involved in what we look like or how good-looking we are or how athletically skilled we are, you know, you can see why the world gets depressed because they're always moving away from it. But you see, as followers of Christ, the areas that we value get better over time. Think about it. Uh, You get wiser over time. I find that it's easier to follow after Jesus over time. I find that it's easier to be godly over time. It's easier to develop character. I I find that ways to serve Christ, you become more effective over time. And so we are not moving away from the good old days. We are moving towards the good old days. They are in our future, and at the end is eternity in heaven. So do you see how our perspective on aging is a powerful uh, thing we can share as we share Christ. Paul gives us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's like a dad driving in the car and a bee flies in the window and his little girl begins to cry out of fear. And so the dad grabs the the bee or the wasp and, and lets it and crushes it and lets it sting his hand and opens it up and there's the stinger in his hand and he shows it to his daughter and says, you don't have to be afraid of that uh, bee anymore. I have taken the stinger on your behalf. And that's what the nail-scarred hands of Jesus did on the cross. He took the stinger on our behalf. And whenever we fear death, we merely look at his nail-scarred hands and we see the results of the stinger that went in there and know that through Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection, where, oh, death is your sting. Um, this is kind of sick that I laugh about this, but I love practical jokes, and, and uh, Kimberly just thinks I'm so sick the way I laugh at other people's fear. And, uh, uh, but I heard about this one. Uh, you know, I'm afraid of snakes. You guys know that. And so I really identify with this, and, and supposedly somebody was telling me about they saw this on TV, a practical joke, and there was a guy that was just terrified of snakes. And don't feel too bad about him uh, because he pulled pranks on other people all the time. So his friends pulled one on him, and he went into a room, and they locked him in the room and began to throw cobras into the room through an opening. And so he's just, he's, he's so scared. He's crying, and they're going up, and they got their hoods up and everything. Now, unbeknownst to him, these were defanged cobras. They couldn't hurt him. But I'm telling you, when you see the hood goes up, and you see him swaying and moving towards you, it is terrifying. And the same thing is true with death. Death is scary. And, and, and when, it, when it flares up its hood and when it moves towards it, it's got that snaky movement that sends chills down my spine. And we, we cry out in fear. And Jesus says, the stinger 
the fangs have been removed. Satan is a fangless serpent. When you have Christ in your heart, where, oh, death, is your sting? It changes everything. I heard the story of a man and his wife. They go to heaven at the same time. And they're walking around. The angel's kind of showing them their new digs and, and everything. And, and the man, he's just getting grumpier and grumpier the whole time the tour goes on. And finally, his wife says, what are you so grouchy about? He says, man, he says, if I hadn't eaten, you hadn't made me eat so much oat bran, I could have been here years ago. I could have I, I, I gotten here. Now, again, it's good to be in good health, and we can serve Christ even more effectively the healthier we are when it's within our control. But it changes everything in the way we look at life. If you haven't turned to the next page of your study outline, um, Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Uh, here's some news. We're all terminal. Um, good health is just a slower way to die. Aren't you glad you came to church today? I mean, you, you get out of bed and say, I need a, I need a word of encouragement. I, you know, I, I can't wait to get there. Glenn's going to give me a word. Good health is just a slower way to die. The death rate in America is still one in one. Still 100%. And so the real issue is, will Christ be exalted, whether by life or by death, regardless of the length of my life? Will Christ be exalted? That is the real issue. Uh, Ephesians 6, Paul writes, pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. You know what I find encouraging about that? If Paul was praying or asking people to pray for him that he be fearless, it must mean that at times he was fearful. Even the great apostle Paul sometimes was tempted to hold back on the truth because of the reaction he might get from the audience. Uh, he, he was afraid sometimes, and boy, that comforts me, and it also lets me know by the grace of God, we can overcome our fear as we share Jesus with our generation, as we seek to influence the culture in, in, in which we live. Number two, after eyes is guts. Christians with the right stuff will not listen to their friends, even when their friends have their best interest at heart but are wrong. Yeah, this is an interesting point. In general, the Bible says in Proverbs, wounds from a friend are faithful. So usually it is a wonderful thing when a friend confronts us, and that's how we can grow through that. Um, the Bible also says there's wisdom and multitude of counselors. Usually the more wise counselors you get, the better your decision will be, okay? Especially those that share your values in life and share your eternal perspective on life. And so multitude of counselors, wounds from a friend, are usually right, but not always. But not always. And this is one of those cases. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Reminds me of Peter with Jesus. Remember, uh, Jesus says to the disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to capture me, and I'm going to be crucified, and then rise again the third day. And Peter, who loved him so very much and had his best interest at heart, Peter said, no way, Lord. 
I mean, the chutzpah to tell Jesus, to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus said, get behind me. Who? You tell me. Satan. Now, he didn't mean that Peter was Satan. But he meant in that case, even uh, somebody that loved him, that had his best interests at heart, was being used by Satan to influence him to, do, to miss out on his main mission, his only mission, which was to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven and rise from the grave so that death could be conquered. And so don't get me wrong, most of the time, wounds from a friend are faithful. Most of the time, uh, wisdom and multitude of counselors. But there are those exceptions. And we need to pray and discern when God is leading us to do something, even when others say that's not the smartest thing to do. Number three is skin. Christians with the right stuff develop thick skin when dealing with criticism. One of my favorite presidents is Teddy Roosevelt. Even though I do have something against me, he's responsible for my middle name being Kermit. That's his fault right there, his fault. Uh, my dad was born in 1913. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt and his wife had named one of their sons uh, Kermit. And my grandparents loved Teddy Roosevelt, and so they thought it would be a wonderful thing to give my dad that middle name. And he lovingly passed it along to me as well. So now I am Glenn Kermit Gunderson Jr., but I've forgiven Teddy Roosevelt because he had so many awesome quotes. Here's one. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds should have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcomings, who knows the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the high achievement of triumph and who at worst, if he fails, while daring greatly, knows his place shall never be with those timid and cold souls who know neither victory nor defeat." I heard somebody say once, no statue has ever been erected to a critic. Uh, we erect those for those that are the doers. Uh, those are the ones. And so Christians that are taking risks and that are out there, you will get some criticism. You will experience failure. But that is a far, far better place to be. Um, I, I love the play uh, Les Miserables. And they say that when it opened, it got savaged by the critics. I think it was like 24 out of 25 reviews were negative. As a matter of fact, one reviewer said, quote, it won't last five days. That was in 1985, 30 years ago, and, and going strong. Well, here's the criticism and the rumors, the, the criticism that came out of the rumors. The rumors came, and then the criticism based on the rumors uh, for Paul. Verse 16, some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasin, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch, it's a wonderful thing. Many Jewish people, particularly even Pharisees and, and uh, Essenes and others that were zealous for the law, had come to Christ. But they had heard the rumor 
that Paul, when he went out preaching to the Gentiles, the non-Jews around the Roman Empire, here's what the rumor was. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Now, this rumor was based in fact of Acts chapter 15, the council of Jerusalem had decided that Gentiles did not need to become Jews in order to be followers of Christ. But the rumor took it a step further to say that Paul was also preaching. In addition to that, he was preaching that Jews had to give up being Jews in order to follow Christ, which was false. Now, he could have been so irritated by this, but as we see, he's going to be very, very gracious because he had developed a thick skin. You know, um, as a pastor, you learn early on, uh, get thick skin or die. I remember when I was a young pastor, 24 years old, and began to pastor a church in a small town, and boy, you're particularly vulnerable to criticism as a young pastor, you know, kind of had a silver spoon in my mouth and never known all that much kind of criticism and, and kind of a positive environment I'd grown up in and stuff, and all of a sudden, you're the pastor of a small town, rural church, and I remember early on, a couple of rumors that went around town. Um, uh, one of them, I, the church partially, it was like this little kind of a Norman Rockwell, New England green there in Homer, New York, a village green. And the church and the parsonage were on sun, one side and the grocery stores on the other. And so one hot summer night, I walked across and got myself a soda and walked back over the green drinking my soda. Well, the rumor went around town that the young new Baptist pastor had been swigging a beer on the, on the green, walking across, you know, as if I'd be so stupid as to do it, you know, out there in the green. But uh, that was it. Um, there was another rumor that went around. My secretary, her husband worked for the railroad, had a very good job, so she drove a very nice car and parked it in front of our office. And so the rumor went around that that was my car and that how can a young guy afford that kind of car? He must be dipping into the offering plate and defrauding the church of money. So he's got that car and he must be swigging his beer, driving around town with his car purchased from the offering. <laughs> and so same thing you know, happens to Paul here. He's got this rumor that he's telling Jews not to be Jews anymore when they follow Christ. He has another rumor um, that causes a riot that Trophimus was a Gentile that had come to Christ that was with him. And so they saw uh, Paul and Trophimus earlier in the day, they saw him in Jerusalem hanging out together. And that's fine, Gentile with a Jew in Jerusalem, no problem. But later on in the day, they saw Paul in the temple area in a section of the temple that was forbidden for Gentiles to go into. And they just assumed, because Trophimus was with him earlier, that Trophimus was with him now, and that Paul had brought a Gentile into the part of the temple where Gentiles were not to be. And so that rumor caused a riot. At the end of the riot in verse 37, and by the way, I'm jumping around chronologically, so you want to read this this afternoon or before you go to bed tonight, just chapters 21 and 22. Just read it in order as a story. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? And he said, no, I'm not. I'm not a terrorist. I didn't bring Trophimus into the temple area. I didn't tell Jews not to be Jews anymore. And I didn't sip a beer while driving a fancy chariot, okay? I, I, I didn't do any of these things. 
Um, And so Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Uh, Jude says about some people, these people are grumblers and fault finders, always looking for some fault to find. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. So the Bible says sometimes we need to ignore people and their criticism, especially if they have an agenda. But now here comes the other side, and that's heart. Christians with the right stuff will be gracious to their critics. They'll be gracious to their critics. You know, whenever I'm criticized, I always say there's got to be some truth in there. What can I learn from this? Even a broken clock is right twice a day. Um, you that are under the age of 50 have no idea what that illustration means. You know, 11, 11, they're going to just look at me cluelessly. Clock, what, clock, clock. But uh, even a broke clock, right twice a day. You know, you know who I've just been so impressed by? Eric Holmstrom, our high school pastor who was just up here. He's in his late 20s, but I'm telling you, this guy's got the wisdom of a six guy in his 60s or 70s. He said something the other day I thought was fantastic. He said, whenever I have somebody that doesn't like me or that criticizes me, I think to myself, I'm going to make that person my new fan, my new best fan. I'm going to turn their heart back, back, back towards me. I love that phrase, and I, I'm taking it for myself, but I, I, I just it was very attractive to me. You know, it kind of reminds me, and I don't mean this as a political statement, but of what they said about Bill Clinton. And regardless of what you say about or believe about Bill Clinton, the man had people skills, okay? He had people skills. And they said whenever he walked into a room, he would just sense who disliked him the most in the room. And his goal for that evening was to make that person like him by the end of the evening. And that that was his goal, to make that person his new best fan. And so Christians with the right stuff will be gracious to their critics. Uh, Skipping back now before the riot, uh, this is when he's just heard that there's this rumor that he tells Jews not to be Jews anymore. So we go back to verse 22. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. This was a Nazarite vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourselves are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Now, again, he could have just been irritated and says, you know, James, enough of this. I'm going back to the Gentiles where they like me, okay? Uh, and, and, and I've just had enough of this. No, what, look what he does. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. And so Paul practices what he preaches. Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now know this about your critics, is you will often not be able to please them. Don't live trying to please your critics because, uh, you know, you, you just try and try and, and they will just often be unpleasable. Usually it doesn't work. But what does Paul say? As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But then if that doesn't bring peace, be at peace with yourself. You've done what you can do. And then number five is our mouth. Christians with the right stuff will have the courage 
to tell the full truth and to listen to the full truth. So there's a riot, and Paul asks the Roman commander, he says, can I talk to the people? And they listen to him respectfully until he says what I call click words. There are certain words that if you're not willing to receive the whole truth, you turn the person off that's speaking. And so in this context, it was the word Gentiles. As soon as he got to the word that God loved the Gentiles as much as he loved the Jews, click, that's when it got turned off, and that's when the riot continued. Okay? It reminds me on a totally different context of back in Acts chapter 17, where Paul is speaking to the Greek philosophers in Athens. And they listen respectfully to him until he uses a click word, and that's resurrection. For them, it was the resurrection of Jesus. That was the offensive thing. And so they listened politely until he shared part of the truth that they didn't want to hear, and then click, they turn it off. And so the temptation for us is to not use that part of the truth, and the temptation of us is also not to receive certain parts of the truth. Then the Lord said to me, go and I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. Now there are certain things that we can uh, avoid in order to not have unnecessary offense. Okay, that's what the Council of Jerusalem was all about. Let's tell the Gentiles that they don't have to do certain Jewish things in order to follow after Christ. Let's not make the bar any more difficult than it, than it needs to be. And so there is a place for sensitivity. There is a place uh, for, for caution. Okay, there is a place. But eventually we need to get through and share the whole truth and not shirk back from the whole truth. And so with... Um, Uh, people that we're trying to share Jesus with, within our culture, within our oikos. There are certain words that will eventually be offensive. Uh, Phrases like Jesus is the only way to God. They'll be happy with us until we, that he's a way to God until we say he's the only way to God. Or words like judgment, or repentance, or hell, or sexual morality. Uh, these, These are things that are offensive about our message. And so we need to not shirk back from sharing the whole truth of God. Even after we become followers of Christ, even for us that are Christ followers, there are certain parts of God's truth that are uncomfortable for us. How many of you agree with me on that? And Well, well not for me either. There are, there are no parts that are uncomfortable, I accept it all. But uh, I mean, words like tithe or witness or materialism. Or small group, if that's not our thing. Or racial reconciliation. Or serve. Or taking a risk for Jesus. And so Christians with the right stuff will have the courage to tell the full truth. And to listen to the full truth. And that's how we grow. And that's how we share Jesus. And that's how we change our culture and our world for Christ. And by the grace of God, we will do that until Christ returns. And all God's family said, amen. Hey, let's stand uh, for our closing benediction. Uh, The prayer room is open with the prayer team and the prayer partners, and it's right off the main uh, 
part of the worship center here. They would love to pray with you also. Uh, prayer is available in Spanish, so if that is your primary language, we have a, a prayer team there that is uh, fluent, and they would love to pray with you there. Love to invite you to Claremont tonight. Feelings of inferiority, do you struggle with those? Or do you have a friend that struggles with those? Love to have you tonight. I think it's gonna be a very, very um, helpful uh, study. So let's, our closing benediction is Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, he's able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore, and all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.